0: CHAPTER Six, THE END OF THE DARK ROAD Once more, Slopperton, on the sloshy, rang with a subject dismissed from the public mind eight years ago, and now revived with a great deal more excitement and discussion than ever. That subject was the murder of Mr. Monohue Harding. All Slopperton made itself into one voice, and spoke but upon one theme— "'the pending trial of another man for that very crime "'of which Richard Marwood had been found guilty years ago. "'Richard, who, according to report, "'had died in an attempt to escape from the county asylum. "'Very little was known of the criminal, "'but a great deal was conjectured. "'A great deal more was invented, "'and ultimately most conflicting reports "'were spread abroad by the citizens of Slopperton.' every one of whom had his particular account of the seizure of De Merol, and every one of whom stood to his view of the case with a pertinacity and fortitude worthy of a better cause. Thus, if you went into High Street, entering that thoroughfare from the marketplace, you would hear how this De Merol was a French nobleman who had crossed the channel in an open boat on the night of the murder, walked from Dover to Slopperton, not above two hundred miles by the shortest cut, and gone back to Calais in the same manner. If, staggered by the slight discrepancies of time and place in this account of the transaction, you pursued your inquiries a little further down the same street, you would very likely be told that Damerol was no Frenchman at all, but the son of a clergyman in the next county, whose unfortunate mother was at that moment on her knees in the throne room at Buckingham Palace, soliciting his pardon on account of his connection with the clerical interest." "'If this story struck you as more romantic than probable, "'you would only to turn the corner into Little Market Street, "'rather a low neighborhood, "'and chiefly inhabited by butchers and the tripe and cowheel trade. "'And you might sup full of horrors, "'the denizens of this locality laboring under the fixed conviction "'that the prisoner then lying in Sloperton jail "'was neither more nor less than a distinguished burglar, "'long the scourge of the United Kingdoms of Great Britain and Ireland.' "'and guilty of outrages and murders innumerable. "'There were others who confined themselves "'to animated and detailed descriptions "'of the attempted escape and capture of the accused. "'These congregated at street corners "'and disputed and gesticulated in little groups, "'one man often dropping back from his companions "'and taking a wide berth on the pavement "'to give his particular story "'the benefit of illustrative action.' Some stories told how the prisoner had got halfway to America concealed in the paddle-wheel of a screw-steamer. Others gave an animated account of his having been found hidden in the corner of the engine-room, where he had lain concealed for fourteen days without either bite or sup. Others told you he had been furled up in the fore-top-sail of an American man-of-war. Others related how he had made the passage in the main-top of the same vessel, only descending in the dead of the night for his meals— and paying the captain of the ship a quarter of a million of money for the accommodation. As to the sums of money he had embezzled in his capacity as banker, they grew with every hour, till at last Slopperton turned up its nose at anything under a billion for the sum total of his plunder." The Assizes were looked forward to with such eager expectation and interest as never had been felt about any other Assizes within the memory of living Slopperton. And the judges and barristers on this circuit were the envy of judges and barristers on other circuits, who said bitterly that no such case ever came across their way, and that it was like Prius Q.C.'s luck to be counsel for the prosecution in such a trial, and that if Nisi... Whom the Count de Morolles had entrusted with his defence didn't get him off, Nisi deserved to be hung in lieu of his client. It seemed a strange and awful instance that Raymond Morolles, having been taken in his endeavour to escape in the autumn of the year, had to await the spring assizes of the following year for his trial, and had, therefore, to drag out even a longer period in his solitary cell than Richard Marwood the innocent victim of circumstantial evidence, had done years before. Who shall dare to enter this man's cell? Who shall dare to look into this hardened heart? Who shall follow the dark and terrible speculations of this perverted intellect? At last the time, so welcome to the free citizens of Slopperton, and so very unwelcome to some of the denizens in the jail, who preferred awaiting their trial in that retreat, to crossing the briny ocean for an unlimited period, as the issue of that trial. At last, the assize time came round once more. Once more, the tip-top slopperton hotels were bewilderingly gay, with elegant young barristers and grave, grey-headed judges. Once more, the criminal court was one vast sea of human heads, rising wave on wave to the very roof, and once more every eager eye was turned towards the dock in which stood the elegant and accomplished Raymond, Count de Merol, alias Jabez North, sometime pauper of the Slopperton on the Sloshy Union, afterwards usher in the academy of Dr. Tappenden, charged with the willful murder of Monahew Harding, also of Slopperton, eight years before. The first point the counsel for the prosecution endeavored to prove to the minds of the jury was the identity of Raymond de Merol, the Parisian, with Jabez North, the pauper schoolboy. This hinged chiefly upon his power to disprove the supposed death of Jabez North, in which all Slopperton had hitherto firmly believed. Dr. Tappenden had stood by his usher's corpse. How, then, could that usher be alive and before the Slopperton jury today? But there were plenty to certify that here he was in the flesh, this very Jabez North, whom so many people remembered and had been in the habit of seeing eight years ago. They were ready to identify him, in spite of his dark hair and eyebrows. On the other hand, there were some who had seen the body of the suicide, found by Peters the detective on the heath outside Sloperton, and these were as ready to declare the aforementioned body was the body of Jabez North, the usher to Dr. Tappenden, and none other. But when a rough-looking man, with a mangy fur cap in his hand, and two greasy locks of hair carefully twisted into limp curls on either side of his swarthy face, which curls were known to his poetically and figuratively disposed friends as Newgate knockers, when this man, who gave his name to the jury as Slithery Bill, or seeing the jury didn't approve of this cognomen, Bill Withers, if they liked it better, was called into the witness-box, his evidence, sulkily and rather despondingly given, as from one who says, "'It may be my turn next,' threw quite a new light upon the subject. Bill Withers was politely asked if he could remember the summer. Yes, Mr. Withers could remember the summer,' Was out of work that summer, and made the marginal remark that them as couldn't live might starve or steal for all Slopperton folks cared. Was again politely asked if he remembered doing one particular job of work that summer. Did remember it, made the marginal remark, and it was a jolly queer job as ever a cove had a hand in. Was asked to be good enough to state what the particular job was. Assented to the request with a polite nod of the head and proceeded to smooth his Newgate knockers and fold his arms on the ledge of the witness-box prior to stating his case, then cleared his throat and commenced discursively thus. Why, it was this here I was out of work. I does up small gents' gardens in the spring and tidies and weeds and rakes and hose a bit back in front when I can get to do it, which ain't often. And being out of work, an old mother thing know me down blind-peter She says to me, she was a wicked old hag, she says to me, I've got a job for them who ask no questions and don't want to be told no lies. By which remark, and the way of her altogether, I knowed she weren't up to no good. So I says, you looks here, mother, if it's a job a respectable young man who's out of work and ain't had a bite or sup since the day before yesterday can do with a clear conscience, I'll do it. If it ain't, I won't there. "'Having recorded with heroic declaration, "'Mr. William Withers wiped his mouth with the back of his hand "'and looked round the court, as much as to say, "'Let Slopperton be proud of such a citizen.' "'Don't you go to flurry your tender constitution "'and do yourself an unrecoverable injury,' the old cat made reply. "'It's a job, as the parson of the parish might do, "'if he'd got a truck.' "'A truck,' I says,' Is it moving boxes? Never you mind whether it's boxes or whether it ain't. Will you do it, she says. Will you do it? And put a sovereign in your pocket, and never go for to split, unless you want that precious throat of yours slit some fine evening. And you consented to do what she required of you, suggested the counsel. Well, I don't know about that, replied Mr. Withers, but I undertook the job. So, she says, that's the old one she says. You bring a truck down by that there broken building ground at the back of Blind Peter at ten o'clock tonight, and you keep yourself quiet till you hears a whistle. When you hear a whistle, she says, bring your truck around, to our front door. This here's all you've got to do, she says, besides keeping your tongue between your teeth. All right, I says, and off I goes to see if there is any cove as it would trust me with a truck again that evening. Well, "'I finds the cove rich, seeing I wanted it bad. "'He stood out for a bob and a tanner for the loan of it. "'Perhaps the jury would wish to be told what sum of money "'I conclude it is money a bob and a tanner represent,' said the counsel. "'They must be a jolly ignorant lot, then, anyways,' replied Mr. Withers. "'Any infant knows eighteen pence when it showed him.' "'Oh, a bob and a tanner are eighteen pence.' "'Very good,' said the council encouragingly. "'Pray go on, Mr. Withers.' "'Well, ten o'clock come, "'and weren't it a precious stormy night, that's all, "'and there I was, a-waiting and a-sitting "'on this blessed truck at the back of blind Peter, "'which was my directions. "'At last the whistle come, "'and a precious cautious whistle it was, too, "'as soft as a nightingale "'who's paying his addresses to another nightingale, "'and round I goes to the front, "'as was my directions.' There against her door stands the old hag and again here stands a man in an old ragged pair of trousers and a shirt looking him hard in the face who does I see but Jim the old one's grandson so I says Jim friendly like but he makes no reply and then the old one says lend this young jant a hand here will you so when i goes and there on the bed i see something rolled up very careful in an old counterpane it give me a turn like "'and I didn't much like the looks of it. "'But I says nothing, "'and then the young man Jim, as I think, says, "'Lend us a hand with this here, will you?' "'And I give me another turn-like, "'for though it's Jim's face, "'somehow it ain't quite Jim's voice, "'more genteel and fine-like. "'But I goes up to the bed, "'and I take hold of one end of what lays there, "'and then I get turn number three, "'for I find my suspicions was correct. "'It was a dead body.' "'A dead body?' "'Yes. "'But whose it was, there was no knowing. "'It was wrapped up in that manner. "'But I feels myself turn dreadful white, "'and I says, "'If this here's anything wrong, "'I washes my hands of it, "'and you may do your dirty work yourself. "'I hadn't got the words out "'before this here young man, "'as I thought at first was Jim, "'caught me by the throat sudden "'and threw me down on my knee. "'I ain't a baby, but, Lord!' "'I was noticing in his grasp "'though his hand was as white "'and as delicate as a young lady's. "'Now you just look here,' he says, "'and I looked as well as I could "'with my eyes a starting out of my head "'in consequence of being just upon choked. "'You see through with this, "'and with his left hand "'he takes a pistol out of his pocket. "'You refuse to do what we want done, "'or you go being nosy "'or in any way ill-convenient, "'and it's the last time as ever "'you'll have the chance of so doing.' "'Get up,' he says, as if I was a dog. "'And I gets up, and I agrees to do what he wants. "'But there was there that devil in that young man's eye "'that I began to think it was best not to go with him.' "'Here Mr. Withers paused for refreshment after his exertions "'and blew his nose very deliberately on a handkerchief "'which, from its dilapidated condition, "'resembled a red cotton cabbage-net.' "'Silence, reigned throughout the crowded court, "'broken only by the scratching of the pen "'with which the counsel for the defense "'was taking notes of the evidence, "'and the fluttering of the leaves "'of the reporter's pocketbooks "'as they threw off page after page "'of flimsy paper. "'The prisoner at the bar "'looked straight before him. "'The firmly compressed lips "'had never once quivered. "'The golden fringed eyelashes "'had never drooped. "'Can you tell me?' "'said the counsel for the prosecution.' "'Whether you have ever since that night "'seen this young man "'who so closely resembled your old friend Jim? "'Never seen him since, to my knowledge. There was a flutter in the crowded court "'as if every spectator had simultaneously "'drawn a long breath. "'Till today.' "'Till today,' said the counsel. "'This time it was more than a flutter. "'It was a subdued murmur "'that ran through the listening crowd.' "'Be good enough to say if you can see him at this present moment.' "'I can,' replied Mr. Withers. "'That's him, or my name ain't the one that I believe it to be,' and he pointed with a dirty but decided finger at the prisoner at the bar. The prisoner slightly elevated his arched eyebrows, as if he would say, "'This is a pretty sort of witness to hang a man of my standing.' "'Be so good as to continue your story,' said the council. "'Well, I does what he tells me, "'and I lays the body with his help on the truck. "'Now,' he says, "'follow this here old woman, "'and do everything that she tells you, "'or you'll find it considerably worse "'for your future happiness.' "'With which he slams the door upon me, "'the old one and the truck, "'and I sees no more of him. "'Well, I follows the old one "'through a lot of lanes and back slums,' "'till she leaves the town behind, "'and gets right out upon the heath, "'and she crosses over the heath, "'till she comes to where it's precious lonely, "'yet the hedge of the pathway-like. "'And here she tells me to leave the body, "'and here shifts it off the truck "'and lays it down upon the grass, "'and it was a raining heavens-hard "'and a thundering and a lightning. "'And now she says, "'What you've got to do is to go back "'from where's you come from, "'and lose no time about it, "'and take notice,' she said, "'If ever you speaks or jabbers about this here business, "'it'll be the end of your jabbering in this world, "'with which she looks at me like an old witch, as she was, "'and points with her skinny arm down the road. "'So I walks my chalks, but I doesn't walk em very far, "'and presently I sees the old a running back towards the town "'as fast as ever she could tear. "'Oh,' I says, "'you are a nice lot, you are, "'but I'll see who's dead, in spite of you. "'So I crawls up there,' "'where they'd left the body. "'And there it was, sure enough. "'But all uncovered now. "'The face a staring up at the black sky. "'And it was dressed, as far as I could make out, "'quite like a gentleman, all in black. "'But it was so jolly dark I couldn't see the face, "'when all of a sudden, "'while I was kneeling down and looking at it, "'there comes one of the longest flashes of lightning "'as I ever remember, "'and in the blue light I sees the face plainer than I could have seen it in the day.' "'I thought I should have fell down all of a heap. "'It was Jim, Jim himself, "'as I knowed as well as I ever knowed myself, "'dead at my feet. "'My first thought was as how that young man, "'as was so like Jim, had murdered him. "'But there weren't no marks of violence "'nowheres about the body. "'Now, I hadn't in my own mind any doubts "'as how it was Jim. "'But still, I says to myself, "'I says everything seems topsy-turvy like this night.' So I'll be sure. So I takes up his arm and turns up his coat sleeve. Now why does this is here? There was a young woman Jim was uncommon fond of her name was Bess, though he and many more called her for short silicons. And one day, when me and Jim was at a public, we happened to fall in with a sailor, who we both met before he went to sea. So he was a tellin' of us of his adventures and such like, and then he said promiscuous, I'll show you something pretty and sure enough, he slipped up the sleeve of his heir Guernsey, and there, all over his arm, was all manner of all sorts of pictures done with gunpowder, such as anchors and rural Britannias and ships in full sail on the backs of flying alligators. So Jim takes quite a fancy to this here, and he says, "'I wish Joe,' the sailor's name being Joe, "'I wish Joe as how'd you do me my young woman's name "'and a wreath of roses on my arm, like that there,' Joe says." and so I will and welcome. And sure enough, a week or two afterwards, Jim comes to me with his arm like a picture book, and Bess is large as life just above the elbow joint. So I turns up his coat sleeve and waits for a flash of lightning. I hadn't to wait long, and there I reads, B-E-S-S. There ain't no doubt now, I says, this here's Jim, and there's some villainy or other in it. "'Very good,' said the counsel. "'We may want you again by and by, I think, Mr. Withers, "'but for the present you may retire.' "'The next witness called was Dr. Tappenden, "'who related the circumstances of the admission "'of Jabez North into his household, "'the high character he had from the board of the Slopperton Union, "'and the confidence reposed in him. "'You place great trust, then, in this person,' "'asked the counsel for the prosecution. "'The most implicit trust,' replied the schoolmaster, "'so much so that he was frequently employed by me "'to collect subscriptions for public charity "'of which I was the treasurer, the Slopperton Orphan Asylum. "'I think it only right to mention this, "'as on one occasion it was the cause of his calling "'upon the unfortunate gentleman who was murdered. "'Indeed, will you be so good as to relate the circumstance?' "'I think it was about three days before the murder, "'when one morning, at a little before twelve o'clock, "'that being the time at which my pupils are dismissed from their studies "'for an hour's recreation, I said to him, "'Mr. North, I should like you to call upon this Indian gentleman "'who is staying with Mrs. Marwood, and whose wealth is so much talked of— "'Pardon me, you said whose wealth is so much talked of. "'Can you swear to having made that remark?' "'I can.' "'Pray continue,' said the counsel. "'I should like you,' I said, to call upon this Mr. Harding— and solicit his aid for the orphan asylum. We are sadly in want of funds. I know, North, your heart is in the work, and you will plead the cause of the orphans successfully. You have an hour before dinner. It is some distance to the black mill, but you can walk fast there and back. He went accordingly, and on his return brought a five-pound note, which Mr. Harding had given him. Dr. Tappenden proceeded to describe the circumstance of the death of the little boy in the usher's apartment on the very night of the murder. One of the servants was examined who slept on the same floors north, and who said she had heard strange noises in his room that night, but had attributed the noises to the fact of the usher sitting up to attend upon the invalid. She was asked what were the noises she had heard. "'I heard someone open the window and shut it a long while after.' "'How long do you imagine the interval to have been "'between the opening and shutting of the window?' asked the counsel. "'About two hours,' she replied, as far as I could guess. "'The next witness for the prosecution was the old servant, Martha. "'Can you remember ever having seen the prisoner at the bar?' "'The old woman put on her spectacles "'and steadfastly regarded the elegant Monsieur de Morel, or Jabez North, "'as his enemies insisted on calling him.' After a very deliberate inspection of that gentleman's personal advantages, rather trying, to the feelings of the spectators, Mrs. Martha Jones said, rather obscurely, "'He had light hair, then.' "'He had light hair, then. "'You mean, I conclude,' said the counsel, "'that at the time of your first seeing the prisoner, "'his hair was of a different color from what it is now. "'Supposing that he had dyed his hair, "'as it is not an uncommon practice,' "'Can you swear that you have seen him before today?' "'I can.' "'On what occasion?' asked the counsel. Three days before the murder of my mistress's poor brother, "'I opened the gate for him. "'He was very civil-spoken, and admired the garden very much, "'and asked me if he might look about it a little. "'He asked you to allow him to look about the garden. "'Pray, was this as he went in, or as he went out? "'It was when I let him out.' And how long did he stay with Mr. Harding? Not more than ten minutes. Mr. Harding was in his bedroom. He had a cabinet in his bedroom in which he kept papers and money, and he used to transact all of his business there, and sometimes would be there till dinner time. Did the prisoner see him in his bedroom? He did. I showed him upstairs myself. Was anybody in the bedroom with Mr. Harding when he saw the prisoner? Only his servant. He was always with him. "'And when you showed the prisoner out, "'he asked to be allowed to look at the garden. "'Was he long looking about?' "'Not more than five minutes. "'He looked more at the house than the garden. "'I noticed him looking at Mr. Harding's window, "'which is on the first floor. "'He took particular notice of a very fine creeper "'that grows under the window. "'Was the window on the night of the murder fastened or not?' "'It never was fastened,' "'Mr. Harding always slept with his window a little way open. "'After Martha had been dismissed from the witness-box, "'the old servant of Mr. Harding, "'who had been found living with a gentleman in London, "'was duly sworn prior to being examined. "'He remembered the prisoner at the bar, "'but made the same remark as Martha had done "'about the change in colour of his hair. "'You were in the room with your late master "'when the prisoner called upon him,' asked the counsel. "'I was.' "'Will you state what passed between the prisoner and your master?' "'It is scarcely in my power to do so. "'At that time I understood no English. "'My master was seated at his cabinet, looking over papers and accounts. "'I fancy the prisoner asked him for money. "'He showed him papers, both printed and written. "'My master opened a pocketbook filled with notes. "'The pocketbook afterwards found on his nephew "'and gave the prisoner a banknote.' The prisoner appeared to make a good impression on my late master, who talked to him in a very cordial manner. As he was leaving the room, the prisoner made some remark about me, and I thought from the tone of his voice he was asking a question. You thought he was asking a question? Yes, in the Hindustani language we have no interrogative form of speech. We depend entirely on the inflection of the voice. Our ears are therefore more acute than an Englishman's. I am certain, he asked my master, some questions about me. And your master? After replying to him, turned to me and said, I am telling this gentleman what a faithful fellow you are, Mujabez, and how you always sleep in my dressing room. You remember nothing more? Nothing more. The Indian's deposition, taken in the hospital at the time of the trial of Richard Marwood, was then read over to him. "'He certified to the truth of this deposition "'and left the witness-box. "'The landlord of the bargeman's delight, "'Mr. Darley and Mr. Peters, "'the latter by an interpreter, were examined, "'and the story of the quarrel "'and the lost Indian coin was elicited, "'making considerable impression on the jury. "'There is only one more witness for the Crown, "'and this was a young man, a chemist, "'who had been an apprentice at the time "'of the supposed death of Jabez North,' and it had sold to him a few days before that supposed suicide the materials for a hair-dye. The counsel for the prosecution then summed up. It is not for us to follow him through the twistings and windings of a very complicated mass of evidence. He had to prove the identity of Jabez North with the prisoner at the bar, and he had to prove that Jabez North was the murderer of Mr. Montague Harding. To the mind of every spectator in that crowded court, he succeeded in proving both. In vain, the prisoner's counsel examined and cross examined the witnesses. The witnesses for the defense were few. A Frenchman, who represented himself as a Chevalier of the Legion of Honor, failed signally in an endeavor to prove an alibi and considerably damaged the defense. Other witnesses appeared, who swore to having known the prisoner in Paris the year of the murder. They could not say they had seen him during the November of that year. It might have been earlier. It might have been later. On being cross-examined, they broke down and acknowledged that it might not have been that year at all. But they had known him in Paris about that period. They had always believed him to be a Frenchman. They had always understood that his father fell at Waterloo in the ranks of the old guard. On cross-examination, they all owned, having heard him at divers' periods, speak English. He had, in fact, spoken it fluently, yes, even like an Englishman. On further cross-examination, it also appeared that he did not like being thought an Englishman, that he would insist vehemently upon his French extraction, that nobody knew who he was or whence he came, and that all anyone did know of him was what he himself had chosen to state. The defense was long and labored. The prisoner's counsel did not enter into the question of the murder having been committed by Jabez North, or not having been committed by Jabez North. What he endeavored to show was that the prisoner at the bar was not Jabez North, but that he was a victim to one of those cases of mistaken identity of which there are so many on record both in English and foreign criminal archives he cited the execution of the Frenchman Joseph Lecherge for the murder of the courier of Lyon. He spoke of the case of Elizabeth Canning, in which a crowd of witnesses on either side persisted in supporting entirely conflicting statements, without any evident motive whatsoever. He endeavored to dissect the evidence of Mr. William Withers. He sneered at that worthy citizen's wholesale slaughter of the English of her most gracious majesty and subjects he tried to overthrow that gentleman by ten minutes. He did his best to damage him by puzzling him as to whether the truck he spoke of had two legs and one wheel or two wheels and one leg, but he tried in vain. Mr. Withers was not to be damaged. He stood as firm as a rock and still swore that he carried the dead body of Jim Lomax out of Blind Peter and on to the heath, and that the man who commanded him so to do was the prisoner at the bar. Neither was Mr. Augustus Darley to be damaged, nor yet the landlord of the bargeman's delight, who, in spite of all cross-examination, preserved a gloomy and resolute attitude, and declared that that young man at the bar, which his hair was then light, had a row with a young woman in the tap-room, and throw that their gold coin to her, which she chucked it back savage. In short, the defense, though it lasted two hours and a half, was a very lame one, and a close observer might have seen one flash from the blue eyes of the man standing at the bar, which glanced in the direction of the eloquent Mr. Prius, Q.C., as he uttered the last words of his peroration, revengeful and murderous enough, brief, though it was, to give to the spectator some idea that the Count de Morol, innocent, an injured victim of circumstantial evidence as he might be, was not the safest person in the world to offend." The judge delivered his charge to the jury, and they retired. There was breathless impatience in the court for three-quarters of an hour, such impatience that the three-quarters seemed to be three entire hours, and some of the spectators would have it that the clock had stopped. Once more the jury took their places. Guilty. A recommendation to mercy? No. Mercy was not for such as he, not man's mercy, Oh, heaven be praised that there is one whose mercy is as far above the mercy of the tenderest of earth's creatures as heaven is above that earth. Who shall say where is the man so wicked he may not hope for compassion there? The judge put on the black cap and delivered the sentence To be hanged by the neck. The Count de Mirol looked round at the crowd. "'It was beginning to disperse "'when he lifted his slender, ringed white hand. "'He was about to speak. "'The crowd, swaying hither and thither before, "'stopped as one man. "'As one man, nay, as one surging wave of the ocean, "'changed in a breath to stone. "'He smiled a bitter, mocking, defiant smile. "'Worthy citizens of Slopperton,' he said, his clear enunciation, ringing through the building, distinct and musical. "'I thank you for the trouble you have taken this day on my account. I have played a great game, and I have lost a great stake. But remember, I first won that stake, and for eight years held it and enjoyed it. I have been the husband of one of the most beautiful and richest women in France. I have been a millionaire, and one of the wealthiest merchant princes of the wealthy South.' I started from the workhouse of this town. I never in my life had a friend to help me or relation to advise me. To man, I owe nothing. To God, I owe only this. A will as indomitable as the stars he made, which have held their course through all time. Unloved, unaided, unprayed for, unwept, motherless, fatherless, sisterless, brotherless, friendless, I have taken my own road and have kept to it. "'defying the earth on which I have lived, "'and the unknown powers above my head. "'That road has come to an end and brought me here. "'So be it. "'I suppose, after all, the unknown powers are strongest. "'Aye, gentlemen, I am ready.' "'He bowed and followed the officials "'who led him from the dock to a coach, "'waiting for him at the entrance to the court. "'The crowd gathered round him "'with scared faces and eager eyes.' The last Slopperton saw of the Count de Morrel was the pale handsome face, a sardonic smile, and the delicate white hand which rested upon the door of the hackney coach. Next morning, very early, men with grave faces congregated at street corners and talked together earnestly. Through Slopperton, like wildflower, spread the rumor of something which had only been darkly hinted at the jail. The prisoner had destroyed himself Later in the afternoon, it was known that he had bled himself to death by means of a lancet, not bigger than a pin, which he had worn for years concealed in a gold ring of massive form and exquisite workmanship. The jailer had found him, at six o'clock on the morning after his trial, seated, with his bloodless face lying on the little table of his cell, white, tranquil, and dead. The agents from an exhibition of works and several phrenologists came to look at and take casts of his head and mass of the handsome and aristocratic face. One of the phrenologists, who had given an opinion of his cerebral development ten years before, when Mr. Jabez North was considered a model of all Slopertonian virtues and graces, and who had been treated with ignominy for that very opinion, was now in the highest spirits, and introduced the whole story into a series of lectures, which were afterwards very popular." The Count de Marolle, with very long eyelashes, very small feet, and patent leather boots, a faultless evening costume, a white waistcoat, and any number of rings, was much admired in the chamber of horrors at the eminent wax-work exhibition above mentioned, and was considered well worth the extra sixpence for admission. Young ladies fell in love with him, and vowed that a being—they called him a being— with such dear blue-glass eyes, with beautiful curly eyelashes— And specks of lovely vermilion in each corner could never have committed a horrid murder, but was, no doubt, the innocent victim of that cruel circumstantial evidence. Mr. Splitters put the Count into a melodrama in four periods, not acts, but periods. One, boyhood, the workhouse. Two, youth, the school. Three, manhood, the palace. Four, death, the dungeon. This piece was very popular and as Mr. Percy Cordoner had prophesied, the Count was represented as living in permanence in boots with gold tassels, and as always appearing, with a spirited disregard for the unities of time and space, two or three hundred miles distant from the spot in which he had appeared five minutes before, and performing in scene four the very action which his foes had described as being already done in scene three, but the transpontine audiences to whom the piece was represented were not in the habit of asking questions. You might snap your fingers at Aristotle's ethics and all the Greek dramatists into the bargain. What would they have cared for the classic school? No, give them enough blue fire and honest British sentiment with plenty of chintzcoats and top boots, and you might laugh, Voltaire to scorn, and be sure of a long run on the Surrey side of the water." so the race was run. And after all, the cleverest horse was not the winner. Where was the Countess de Marolle during her husband's trial? Alas! Valerie, thine has been a troubled youth, but it may be that a brighter fate is yet in store for thee. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.